This is Joel Spolsky, the host of the Stack Overflow podcast. Our podcast depends on listeners like you, who aren't you because you're already listening, and we need more listeners like you. We don't have any kind of fancy marketing budget, so please, if you enjoy this podcast, tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you. I always mispronounce all names, so what happens is I panic in a weird way as I get closer and closer. Everything shuts down, and I'm like, I'm not going to get this right. I'm not going to get this right. Breschiasha. <laughs> What's that Italian food that everybody says wrong? Bruschetta? Yeah. Don't t- no, don't, t- don't say that. It's no. bruschetta. Bruschetta. It's bruschetta. <laughs> bruschetta. This is the Stack Overflow Podcast, episode 102, recorded Thursday, February 23rd. 2017 at Stack Overflow headquarters in New York, New York, home to both cows and people, where more than 8 million people live in peace and enjoy the benefits of democracy. Today's podcast is brought to you by SHA-1, the secure hash algorithm, a cryptographic hash function designed by the United States National Security Agency. On today's (laughs) podcast, VP of Engineering David Fullerton. Hello. We don't have Jay. He's on vacation in Hawaii. And our news editor, Ilani Itzkaki. Hello, everyone. And today's special guest, co-founder of Bitnami, Erica Brescia. Hello. I'm your host, Joel Spolsky. Hi, everyone. Hi, Joel. Did you get the joke about the cow? That was great. That was in reference to that cow that was running wild in in Queens. Yeah, yesterday there was a cow walking around in Queens. It escaped from an abattoir. Is that the word? Is that a word? Abattoir? Yeah. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but it's a word. Abattoir? Abattoir. A place where they kill cows and turn them into meat. <laughs> yes, correct. <laughs> it had escaped from one of these places and was just sort of walking around. And there was a massive cow hunt through the streets of Queens. And eventually they found it and killed it, which is very sad. They probably won't eat this one even. Maybe they will. They did kill it. I don't know if they'll eat it. but It's, oh. it's sad. You'd think like the rule with the guillotine used to be that if the guillotine failed for any reason, you were considered to be pardoned. I think it depended on how badly the powers that be wanted you dead, though. I think so. But there was a theory that if, if God didn't smite you, or God has decided to spare you or something. Well, if God like actually went to the trouble of intervening to cause the guillotine to fail, not super often. <laughs> well, what they do is, in your place, they kill the guy who is responsible for maintaining the oh, guillotine. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's no reason he can't actually get his head cut <laughs> off, <laughs> the maintainer of the guillotine. Okay, so anyway, that's probably what happened with this cow and the Shaw one joke. Did everybody get my Shaw one joke? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah we got that too. Okay. Just checking. That's all I got was like a titter. <laughs> Should we do one minute tech review? Yeah. This is going to be like an hour because I got a lot to talk about. I completely replaced. I used to have a MacBook Pro for my home computer and I upgraded to the latest MacBook Pro. And as you all know, that has a little touch thingamajiggy across the top, bar, like a strip the above bar. the keyboard. I don't have to introduce that. You all know about that. There's no escape key, which is maddening. Instead, you just have to touch the little touch strip in the top left. Which kind of works about one out of 100 times. And there's a keyboard with very, very, very little key travel. And most of the keys are broken <laughs> most of the time. And so having gotten this one repaired at the Apple Store and having to spend many hours of my life sitting on one of their little stools next to the little wood tables that they have waiting for somebody to repair this computer, which turns out not to be possible because the entire computer is just a, a continuous mush inside. And so they can't repair any part of it. They have to send the whole thing off to Apple and get you a new one. I got the first key repaired, and then another key was broken when I got the new one home, and I was like, I'm just fed up with this. I'm not going to spend the rest of my life in the Apple store. So I got a Windows computer. So my one-minute tech review is the Dell XPS 13 oh. two-in-one computer. What's the two? 
two in, in one, one because it's a tablet and a laptop. Oh, is it one of those ones where you can rip its head off and it becomes a tablet? <laughs> Can't rip it off, but you can fold it yeah, all it the way around the back like a yogi. Oh, oh, my wife has one of those. But the annoying thing, you got the keyboard yeah. then yeah, on the, the back side of the tablet. Out. It's absurd. Which doesn't and then, make any sense. And then you go into the software and you go into a control panel somewhere and you say, enter tablet mode. And then after that happens, it ignores, the it ignores the keyboard. But the keyboard, right. the keys are... They don't really get in your way. It's not a great tablet. It's too heavy and big to be a tablet. There's no reason you would ever use the tablet mode here. Okay, so we reject the two-in-one. What about the rest of the machine? Okay, so first of all, I haven't been using Windows for a while, but they all have the touchscreens now, and that's really cool. Like, you can touch anything on the screen, and in fact, most of the Windows developers have gotten pretty good about spacing things far enough apart that you can tap things and touch things and... It's that amazing how quickly you adapt to the touchscreen and get used to it. Like just for like scrolling, it's actually yeah. so much more intuitive to scroll a web page using your finger. You think it's like, ah, oh, it's so far, I got to move my you hand whole lift your inches. whole arm up off of the table. But it just feels so much more intuitive to just scroll using your Yeah. The other finger. thing is Windows has gotten a lot better. Windows does sort of vary between an awful release and a decent release. And I think Vista was a terrible release. Which came first, Vista or Windows 7? 7 was the good one that came after Vista. Right, 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 right. And then they and had then 8, which was eight was really abysmal. messed up. It was messed up because there were certain apps that could only run full screen, including many important yeah. system things. There were like two modes, and your app was either Taking the, tab the whole tablet mode or desktop mode. And yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, it'd be like you'd go into settings or something, and it would be like, yeah, I'm at like a volume setting panel that has an up button and a down button, but I'm going to take up the entire screen and not let you yes. look at your other apps. And it looks completely different. It's got like the Windows tablet-y look, which right. is all blocky and solid colors. Yes. There's still some of that in Windows 10. So that was completely ridiculous. But whatever the current version of Windows is 10.1 or something, I don't know, whatever the current version is, they fixed that. All of those Somewhat. full screen apps can now run in a window. Oh, yes, they did fix that. But you still get like two modes, right? It drives me crazy when you're going in control panel. It's like it tries to dump you in like the dumb version first, which is like the Windows right. 8 version. And then you got to be like somewhere way down, there's like advanced, and then you get the real control panel view. Yeah, which Windows 7. Work. So hopefully you won't need to go that far. There's still a few little unfinished things. It's really gotten so much better. It's actually kind of usable as opposed to having been unusable. So kudos to Microsoft. It is pretty much, you know, a fine computer. I'm, I'm happy using Windows again. You're giving it a thumbs up. Shockingly. This tech review is... So yeah, thumbs up on the Dell XPS 13 2-in-1 with whatever their version of the Retina screen now, wait. is, they call it Quad. Is this the same as the XPS 15 where the camera is in the stupid place at ah, the bottom? Camera's in a very stupid place. So if you are the type of person that likes to type while you are having your web conferences, all the people will see your hairy knuckles essentially blown up yeah. to like an enormous Even size. Even if you don't, they're looking up your nose because the angle is looking, so weird. Yeah. at the bottom of the screen yeah, there. Yeah, because the camera is at the bottom of the screen. So what you have to do is when you have one of those web calls, it is a two-in-one, so you so can you flip, flip it into it. tablet mode. Ah. Oh. And then no, you can't really use terrible. your keyboard or anything. Yeah, that's not but a good workaround. You put it in what they call, I think they call it tent mode, because it's like a table tent. Yeah, in yeah, 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 yeah. Like upside down V. And you stand, and that's really the only way to have a conference call, but I don't have that many video calls. What? Um, that's all we do all day here. Yeah, I know, but that's it works. But, but you don't need to do that on your laptop. You use your something else for yeah, that. Yeah, or I could go get the Mac, which is still, you know, okay. Like some of the keys are not broken yet. <laughs> still work. Oh, you still, I thought you returned your MacBook Pro. No, no. you just bought another one? Yeah. Uh, I, another I, I should machine? return it. I should punish Apple, make them take it back. 
So that is the one minute takeaway. There's like five minutes, but I'm actually kind of shocked. I thought I was probably never going to go back to Windows for any purpose. And now I'm one of those people that's constantly trying to remember whether it's Alt or Command or Shift. I'm really sad. I was a late Mac convert. I got the 2015 Retina MacBook Pro and it's like the best machine I've ever owned. Like when I got it, it felt like it was 10 years ahead of where Windows machines were. I was, I couldn't believe how much better it was. And then now that sounds like they're just regressing. I feel like they're kind of neck and neck and and Apple is really going to have to pull it together and and do something innovative. Well, they tried with the touch bar, but it's at best mixed reviews. Yeah. Why not have the whole screen be a touch screen? I mean, what do you need a touch bar for it? Yeah. That's what everyone was hoping they would go to, but yeah, it would break too many things probably. Okay. Okay. Got it. All right. XPS 13 A plus. Yeah. Okay. As you know, we're preparing a constitution for Stack Overflow. Hey, guys. I'm uh, Stu Krause. I practically run the whole IT department here and read all your emails. Did someone put in a support ticket at the help desk? Oh, I filed a ticket a couple hours ago, but... Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, that's on me. I'm on on Beijing time. Uh, Just saying, China's the next empire, so uh, be prepared and set your clocks. Stu... Maybe pick this up later. Well, yeah. Well, you see, we're kind of running behind on IT because ever since Randy and Travis quit over an incident involving a Twinkie, things uh, <laughs> things kind of backed up. So I don't know if, uh, oh, if we're going to be able to come back up here. Things got really messy. I mean, you should Lost really two be of doing our best this- men that day, I got to tell you. Okay, fine. What What is it? What do you need? Well, according to your ticket, your, uh, your printer's broke down. Now, let me turn to my <sighs> trusty IT manual. Do we even have a printer here? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, okay, let's see what's happening here. All right. Let's check this out. Step one, hit control P. Haven't you done this before? You should I've know done this how many to do times, this, right? Many okay. times, many times. But they teach anything at DeVry and IT Tech. They always say stick to the manual. So yeah. I'm sticking to it. Step two, file print. Okay, nothing is there. Oh, you know what? Looks like you just didn't plug it in. <laughs> That's what's the problem. You guys just didn't plug it in here. Stu, so can, we, can we do this later? We're, we're kind of in the middle of a, a live podcast here. What was that? Say that again. A live podcast. We're in the middle of recording a podcast. People are listening. The radio. This is the radio. We're on the radio here. So this is live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, everybody People are listening to us. They're listening. They're listening to you, Stu. I gotta go. Abort! (laughs) (laughs) He just ran out. So um, where were we? I think we were on a constitution question. (sighs) As you know, we're preparing a constitution for Stack Overflow each week. We bring you a proposal and you, our listeners, will decide on whether that proposal becomes a part of our new constitution. Okay, last week our question was, if you're frequently switching back and forth between Macintosh and Windows... Oh, yeah. Which I do now, by the way, should you remap the command and the alt key to alt and vice versa, right? Because all the things that are alt are command. With the result of last week's constitution question... News editor, Ilana Itzhaki. It was so close. So close. So close. But con, 56%. Wow. Yeah. Con, you should not remap. Do not map. That's correct. Okay. And the winner is Daniel Allen White at the True A+. He says, con, we control our minds to adapt to the alt keyboard layouts since there is no escape from our other machines in the world. Oh, wow. Oh, I get it. He it made a joke so with cute. a whole bunch of- Oh, it looks so much. It looks so good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He didn't get command in there, though. Or shift. Or option or FN. All right, so he gets what a sticker? Or he gets a, a sticker, or a, sticker, a yacht, something. I'm gonna run out of stickers at this rate. Okay, but we're gonna get a constitution, so it's gonna be awesome. Today's constitution question is: Maybe you can explain this one, David. Fifty uh, character commit question. messages, pro or con? Fifty character as the max 
for your commit message when you're checking things into version control? Just the first line. Please explain. Yeah. So I was using a new tool this week, the new VS Code editor. And when you use the Git plugin there and you try to commit something to Git, you type your commit message and you get past 50 characters and it does this little polite, little annoying little pop-up that pops up and says, um, you know, you should really only use 50 characters and then uh, start a new line. And I was like, that's dumb. I hate that. Is this because when you do a log or to see the history of a file, it shows you the, like the file name and the time, and then there's only like 50 characters Pretty left. Pretty sure that's where it actually comes from. It's from Terminal 80 character with Terminal Windows. Yeah. But yeah. people will give you, like you Google this, and they like give you all the like logic, that the reasoning that they've added afterwards, where they're like, no, it's because it forces you to be more succinct in your commit messages and then put details on further lines. But I'm pretty sure it all just goes back to 80 character Terminal Windows. Yeah. Okay, so that's the constitution question. Wait, you can have multiple lines to a commit message? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry. And also, why is it not the client's job to just word wrap for you? Why is this even an issue? It's the absolutely ridiculous. Okay. Anyway, pro. Pro, cut it off after 50 characters. 50 character limit. Con is just go ahead and type as much as you want. That's Put right. Put a whole Magilla there. We don't care. Post your answer to Twitter using the hashtag pound stack overflow podcast with either pro or con and your explanation short but convincing. And your explanation must fit in. This week, 50 characters, unless you're a con, in which case you can use all 140 characters, the best explanation, whether on the winning side or the losing side, will be read on next week's podcast and win a fabulous Stack Overflow sticker, courtesy of the Stack Overflow podcast. Also, submit your ideas for future constitutional amendments. One of them might be named after you. Post your proposed constitutional amendment to Twitter using hashtag Stack Overflow podcast. And if it's not completely awful, we may or may not feature it in a future poll. Okay. So... Our special guest today yeah. is Erica Brescia from Bitnami. So this is normally our developer story segment. Erica, you're not a developer, but obviously you work with a lot of developers and work on developer tools. So super excited to have you on the show. Excited to be here. Thanks. So to get us started, can you just tell us a little bit, how did you sort of first get involved in developer tools or in open source or things like that? Sure. As with many things in life, it was, I think, just chance and being open to new opportunities. I've always been pretty geeky and had some very geeky tendencies. So I was reading a lot about open source. This was back in like 2003 or 2004 when Linux was starting to gain more adoption. And it just so happened that I got introduced to my co-founder, Daniel Lopez. I was really interested in what he was working on and how he wanted to build a business in the space. And I ended up joining him and, you know, one step at a time, built the company up from there and have certainly absorbed a lot about developers, developer tools, open source, infrastructure, software, and all those fun things along the way. Cool. Cool. So that was the company that eventually became Bitnami. Is that right? Exactly. Awesome. So for our listeners, what is Bitnami? What do you guys do? Bitnami is a catalog of open source and commercial applications that are packaged up and maintained by Bitnami so that people can deploy them anywhere in just a few clicks. So a developer can come to our website and get something like WordPress. I know you had Matt on the show recently or a development environment, you know, Rails or Node, Mean, things like that or even tools like Jenkins. And then they can deploy them either as a native installer or a VM on a local environment or to any of the major cloud platforms. And now we've been doing a lot with containers and investing a lot in the Helm project for deploying apps on Kubernetes. So the idea is that if you come to Bitnami or if you get our apps through any of the channels where we publish them, the cloud vendor marketplaces, for example, you know that you're getting trusted, up-to-date, consistently configured, always maintained kind of app stacks. And then you can get consistent environments across all those different platforms so you can move between them more easily. Cool. Yeah. So I was just looking at the number of different 
applications you guys support. It's really, the list just keeps going and, and going it's like and going. like 150 and growing and growing. I noticed Discourse. Yes. Obviously, our yes. good friend, Jeff Atwood, his new project, Discourse. The stack father. Also on yeah. there. The stack father. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Jeff is awesome. Discourse is awesome. Yeah, we have a very wide range of apps and it continues to grow. We're getting much more focused around like specifically developer tooling and also like enterprise applications. So you'll see a lot more of those coming in the future. So hypothetically, let's say that I want a Discourse server. I go to Bitnami. I get your thing, thingamajiggy mm-hmm. image. A VM or an yeah. installer or an AMI or whatever. Yep. And then I tell you where I want to run that, like AWS or something or... Where does yeah, it I mean, it's kind of you click through. So you'd click on Discourse, and then you can click this Deploy to the Cloud button, and then it'll give you a selection of the six clouds that we support right now. And you mm-hmm. can click on one of those, and it takes you through like a launch process to launch it in your cloud account. Oh, got it. So you don't even need to register or sign up for an account with Bitnami. They're free, and we love it if you do, so we can you know communicate. But if not, you don't even have to register with us. You can also find them going through you know the AWS or Azure or Google or other cloud marketplace. Places too. So you can just search for Bitnami Discourse and it'll pop up. It sounds like the cloud marketplace is getting to be super generic. So if I'm using, you know, Amazon versus Azure, I could run Discourse on either of them just by a choice of which button I click. Then that makes them almost a commodity, really. Yes and no. I mean, the reality is there's still a big difference in cloud vendors, particularly around the supporting services that they have. Like Amazon is still just way ahead of the pack. I mean, I'd argue Mm -hmm. that Azure is catching up very quickly and they're doing some really smart things. But when you look at kind of the breadth of services that they offer and just different tooling, I think there is still a difference. The pricing obviously continues to change, although that's going to near zero. I think they're going to make all their money off these other services like RDS and things like that. And we're starting to create, I should mention, like multi-tier deployment templates. So we're using CloudFormation on Amazon, you know, ARM templates on Azure and Deployment Manager, it's called on Google. And so you can say deploy like WordPress, but use the native database service from the cloud platform to give you that additional, you know, scalability and reliability. Wow. That's really cool. So you really started primarily doing these sort of cloud deploys, but now you can also, you can get stuff directly as containers or as a VM that you can run sort of locally. It's interesting, Bitnami's existed for years now and gone through sort of the rise of containers, I guess. How has that sort of affected how you think about what you do and kind of adopting that and then getting into some of the the container stuff that's happening now with like Docker Swarm and things like that? Sure. My favorite topic. So we actually started with native installers, then Mm -hmm. VM, then cloud, then containers. So we've kind of followed the whole evolution. You know, I think there's obviously a lot of talk and we spend a lot of time in the container bubble. But when we get out and talk to customers, you know, the truth is it's still fairly small deployments when you're looking at actual production use cases. We see Mm -hmm. a lot of enterprises who are using containers maybe in development, but they're still putting things into production and VMs. So I think, you know, there's a lot of promise around containers and they will become, I think, one of the primary ways that people deploy and manage applications in the future, but there's still a long road there. I think one of the most interesting things is, you know, using containers really forces you to automate the heck out of everything that you do, right? You could kind of get away with it, 
you know, without automating things in a virtualized world, but it's just not possible when you look at how containerized apps are deployed and what the life cycle looks like and things like that. So I think it's changing the way that people think about you know, planning for and instrumenting their software deployments. And that's really exciting for us because one of the things that we've been working on for 18 months is going from, you know, providing this catalog of applications to actually productizing and providing the tooling that we use to develop and maintain that catalog at such scale to other companies. And so it's going to be cool to be able to use a single set of tooling to cater to your current needs in a maybe VM-based deployment scenario but also allow you to output, you know, containers or deploy on an open shift or ACS environment or something like that moving forward. Neat. So tell us a little bit about Bitnami, the company. You guys are actually a remote team. Is that right? Semi-remote, okay. which is even more challenging in some ways. Um, we have a bunch of people in San Francisco where I'm calling in from mm -hmm. about 20-ish, I think, here. And we have a big development team in Seville where my co-founder is from. And we actually started the company there originally. We were bootstrapping. And from a cost perspective, Seville is a lot cheaper than San Francisco. But now we've <laughs> built a fantastic team there. And we have somewhere around 40 engineers there. And then we have a bunch of other remote people 15 or 20 folks working remotely all over the world. So, you know, it takes a lot of planning and tooling, I think, to do that well and make sure that the people that are remote feel like an integral part of the team. It's something we spend a lot of time on. And I'm proud to say I think we do it, you know, relatively well, though we're always looking for ways to improve. Yeah. So something we think a lot about as well, I mean, we're a remote company, kind of similar. We have sort of our main flagship office and then a couple other offices, but then huge part of the team is remote working from home all over the world. So like you, we think a lot about tooling and I always like talking to people who work in remote companies, just hear kind of what their, I guess, remote work stack is and what kind of tools they use. What's been most effective? Sure. So I, I heard someone complaining on an earlier podcast about Slack. We are heavy users <laughs> of Slack. Might have been me. It's not entirely full of baby and dog pictures, though. I heard <laughs> talking about that. But we do love Slack and we try to communicate very openly. And for our engineering team, we use predominantly Fabricator, which is an open source project that came out of Facebook. That's working really well for us. And we also use Trello and Zendesk and some other tools around like support and tracking. But I think even more than the tooling, which is important, you know, having wikis and open communication and all that stuff is actually some of kind of the process that we have around it. So every two weeks, even though we're over 70 people now, we still have an all company sync. It's at 830 in the morning Pacific. We're using Zoom for that. And we have the whole team dial in for a meeting and, you know, engineering, marketing and product always talk about, you know, major movements or major accomplishments. We do demos. The exec team gives updates on, you know, key customer wins and things like that. And we have a lot of time for questions and actually a running Slack channel during the presentations. And there's a lot of questions and discussion that happens there. And that's been really important just to keep everybody on the same page. And the other thing that we do is an all hands, which, you know, is costly in particular in terms of time. But we find that getting everybody together in person is really important. We used to do it twice a year and we're just now switching to once a year because it does take so much time to put together and we felt like they were becoming less effective of having them so frequently with such a big group. So now we do one big one once a year and then smaller group sprints throughout the year to get specific teams together. 
Yeah, that's exactly where we ended up, I think. Yeah. I remember some of the early pioneers of all remote work were doing those things like quarterly or much more yeah. frequently. I remember watching companies like WordPress and Balsamic. I think WordPress just had a lot more money and Balsamic was a lot smaller. <laughs> but like when you're sitting there trying to calculate the cost of sending everybody to one place, just in airfare and hotels and in lost productivity or whatever, it's, it just starts to become really significant. But then again, you're hiring great people from all over the world. So feels like it's worth it. Yeah. And do you do those meetups in Seville or San Francisco or both or neither? We used to do them in like fun places. We went to Costa Rica when we were like 15 people, but now yeah. they're all in Seville. We've got a pretty big office there. And what we do is we have a week-long company kind of sprint where we have required team presentations in the morning and then mostly optional presentations in the afternoon. And the team gets to like actually vote and suggest and request topics for those. And then we do something fun on the weekend now. So we actually, because it's Spain and it's really not that expensive, we rented an entire castle at our last all hands for what? the weekend. Wow. Yeah. They turned it into a five-star hotel and we got them to yeah. hang a 30 foot by 30 foot <laughs> Vietnami banner flag over the side. It was awesome. Wow. Yeah, it was great. And you would be shocked at how inexpensive it was, but yeah. yeah. Free haircuts in Seville too. <laughs> so Joel, I have a new request for our next company meetup. <laughs> I want a castle. <laughs> Sorry, Joel. <laughs> okay. Yes, David. And anything, Erica, you wanted to plug or that our listeners should take a look at? Sure. We just launched a site yesterday called cubeapps.com. It's K-U-B-E-A-P-P-S.com. And we work with Deus to build an open source project called Monocular that allows you to store and deploy Helm charts, which is the way that you deploy things on Kubernetes. And so cubeapps.com has a ton of like great pre-built charts in it that you can use. And we're also looking for community contributions. So it would be awesome if people would check it out and give it a try and let us know if there are more apps they want to see or if they want to contribute their own apps. We're really excited about it and looking forward to getting more of the community involved. Cool. Well, great. Erica, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you. If people want to you know, find you on the blogs or the Twitters, what's the best place for them to find you? I'm at Erica Brescia on Twitter, which is B-R-E-S-C-I-A. Great. Well, thank you again so much for coming. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure. Yep. Take care. Bye. Shall we do some news? Susan Fowler worked as an engineer at Uber for a year, which oh. began with her being sexually propositioned by a manager via the company's chat platform and ended with her quitting after she was told she could be fired illegally for reporting a discriminating manager to HR. Yeah. And I think a few other things in between, as I remember, this was quite a story. Yeah. Horrendous, really. I'm against it. Let's all use Lyft. Okay. Next. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I got a few things to say here. One is... A lot of times I read one of these stories where somebody is writing kind of a long story about how they got fired from the company or whatever, and you come away feeling like on the surface, yeah, you shouldn't have gotten fired or something, but you come away often feeling like the person who's writing this story might have been a difficult person or done something or... I don't know. Sometimes you feel that. I did not feel that at all. This is the first time I've read one of these stories and said, oh, man, this is <laughs> this is this is pretty blatant. It yeah. sounds like I don't know if it's partially because at this point, nobody expects anything out of Uber because this is about the 19,000th time we've heard one of these stories about Uber. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are countless stories about the way Uber treats women. Yeah. And it's also the story is not hedgy at all. It's like, well, I got propositioned on the chat platform. And so I took a screenshot. 
And then I submitted it to them. It, it wasn't like, I really felt like he was trying to pressure me to. It was, this is really blatant yeah. for one of these stories. And of course, for every blatant story, there's 99 other like non-blatant stories where the culprits sort of can yeah. escape in the shadow of the non-blatant. And okay, to be clear, I think we should always give the benefit of the doubt, not to the company, but to the person who is putting themselves out there and coming forward and sure. talking about the abuse that they experienced. Yeah. And shame on the HR department for protecting the company and not Extremely protecting- Extremely weird. Yes. I mean- Exactly the opposite of what they should have been but doing. But they didn't, they weren't protecting the company. They were getting the company in trouble is what they were doing. Like their, their job is to protect the company by yes. investigating these things and making sure that they don't happen so that the company doesn't get sued. Well, yeah. And who's protecting the employees. Right. Well, you know, hopefully that that works out to be the same thing, but no. Yes. That's the other, like a good HR team, like even the HR teams that all they do is want to protect the company, like- They would, they should investigate They should just this. fire somebody instantly. Yeah. It's just like, oh, this is a huge liability. Like we're going to get sued. Let's just fire this person. Like, But when they're pulling in big numbers, why would they want to fire them? Because they don't care. It's the HR department. Wait, I have a rant on this. Here's my problem. I can't tell exactly what's going on in Uber, but one huge red flag that jumps out to me is it sounds like they are taking their best performers. Yeah. And those are the people they're promoting and putting into management. And this is a massive anti-pattern. Everybody, like everybody talks about this, right? You can't just take your person who's your best programmer and make them a manager. Why is the person who's the manager being identified as a top performer who they can't afford to release? Your manager should be the person who is not a top yeah. performer, but who understands like building and maintaining a team and treating people with respect and how to actually, you know, Correct. make a creative environment for women. Yeah. How is almost getting the company sued and getting the company into this kind of trouble? How does anybody even think of that as being a high performer? So it's that. But I also think like when you set up an engineering management culture, yeah. right, and what you are setting up managers to do is to be coaches and supporting the people under them and creating the environment yeah. that you want, then... You don't run into yeah. this conflict of, well, they're a high performer, at least not with a manager. So you may run into another person on the team is it's being like a the creep, but being then the manager is not, you know, and you can still have managers who are awful, right? Who are set up to be coaches, but at least you're separating out their like performance and achieving things for the company from. Right. So anyways, first problem is that it's not even clear why the managers were being chosen based on their technical alleged performance as opposed to their management capabilities. Number two is the HR department is monumentally incompetent for allowing anything like this to be covered up. They should have been the ones screaming about this. It's really bizarre how anybody with any HR training whatsoever would not think that this is a thing to scream bloody murder about. And the third thing is that, you know, a fish rots from the head and I will just leave it at that. But like everybody wants to throw HR under the bus or the manager under the bus. But this kind of stuff is happening in a company because it's encouraged or ignored or whatever at the highest levels. Yeah, that's the thread running through the post too, is this obsession with performance, whatever that means, right? Presumably just moving the company right. metrics, making the, all the graphs go up and to the right. And that is the ultimate judge of you as a person in this company. And then that just becomes everything else is secondary to that, right? That's the danger. And that's when you get yourself into, it's like the first bad thing happens and that's awful when somebody is, you know, sexually assaulted or whatever in a company, but it becomes... 10 times worse when the company does not handle that well and respond to it well. Right. I mean, it shouldn't be when finally it comes into the news and the CEO is like, oh, well, now we're going to now we're going to look into it. Yeah, that was it was a little bit hilarious because what it shows is that Uber was really good at the crisis management part. You know, like the CEO was responding. The PR team was <laughs> totally on the ball. <laughs> HR team was totally lost. But 
This is a company that has built They've sort of an amazing, to Christ. like we will deal with the public relation fallout of all the crap that we do because they've done so much crap over the years. Usually it's just, you know, breaking laws about, you know, operating as an illegal limousine company okay. or whatever. So it's fun to throw stones at Uber, especially because we all already hated <sighs> Uber a little bit before this. But how do you actually yeah. like, let's point, you know, point the finger at ourselves. How do we make sure this is something that's not going to happen here? How does a company make sure they don't end up in this situation? I think one thing we've already said, it's like... Part of it's like, just hire a real HR team, right? Like, don't take, I don't know, some random person in the company and be like, well, okay, I guess you can be in charge of HR, which isn't probably the case at Uber, but it happens <laughs> to a lot of like really small companies. Yeah. They're pretty big I know, at this they're point. They're huge. It's, really it's so weird strange that they don't, that have, they don't have a functioning HR department, but okay. No, it just has to be that they get ignored. It's not by just this. Uber. It's yeah. lots of tech companies where this stuff happens and it gets buried. Yeah. I think it's worse because like I constantly look at it and think for every one thing that gets reported, That's, there's yeah. another 10 that don't get reported. Right. I mean, I think it's just a no-tolerance policy. It's yeah. like you hear about it and you fire the person. That's it. It's your reputation. Yes. Yes. That's it. You don't give them another chance. I mean, I don't like zero-tolerance policies because you have to at least understand the infraction. But I'm not trying to defend the person. I mean, you still do the investigation. That's why you have HR or somebody independent do the investigation. But if you find out that it actually happened, yeah. you've got a chat log and you can see it happened, then yeah, that's it. Like, there's no, there's not really a discussion yeah. at that point. Like... As a manager, this is so grossly inappropriate that that's just like, we're done here. I want to interject for like one second to like answer that from something really great that I read. It's about trust because the women that this is happening to are not going to go to anyone that they don't trust with any of this. Right. Like we need to be able to trust our managers or trust other people or at least have other people within the company that we can talk to about this. Because if I don't trust you, then I'm not about to tell you that this high earner salesperson is treating me like garbage because I'm automatically going to think that you're going to go with the high earner that's treating me like garbage because he's making mm. so much money. So we have to trust people enough that something is going to happen from it or we're going to keep our mouth shut because there is so much blowback from anyone who says anything like this. It's so hard for women to say these things and not be like that troublemaker or that person that's just trying to get, and, and this is nobody's name here, like trying to get James in trouble or something like this. So it's all about trust from the, like, the bottom up. Yeah. I mean, what we've done at Stack Overflow, which is inherited from Fog Creek, was just a policy of you can go to HR if they exist. You can go to Joel. You can go to anybody who's a manager in the company. And so you can sort of choose a manager that you do trust to go to who then becomes deputized to be the person that has to resolve your problem or follow up with your yeah. issue. And this is where some of the, like, the inclusion stuff, just making sure like, you're talking about this stuff in the company so people can hear that this is something that at least somebody cares about and so there's somebody I can go talk to. Here's another thing that I've started doing kind of quietly and just on the side, but as people join the engineering team who are women or, or from different backgrounds or whatever, I make sure I go to them one-on-one -on -one shortly after they join and say to them, like, I've got your back, basically. I understand that in a company of this size, it's not a matter of if, but when something terrible is going to happen. And I want you to know that you can come and tell me when it does. And I am going to believe you because I know that it's going to happen eventually here. Because it just, you know, just by the numbers. So I don't know. I hope that that means something to people when I say that and they believe me when I say that to them, to anybody who reports up to me. They don't have to come to me. They can go to HR, but they can come to me if and when this happens. So I don't know. That's the thing that I do. Yeah. And I hope that that helps, at least maybe just to build that kind of trust. 
What should Uber do now? Ugh. The problem is like what Jess was talking about, like the, the trust and the, like that comes back to culture and trusting that the yeah. company is going to do the right thing. And yep. I don't know how you build its trust. Like, how do you build that back up? That seems so hard. How do you fix do you a culture fix that's broken? That's how do you build broken. trust from a point of, it's not just, I don't know what you're going to do. It's like, I know, I know you're going to do the wrong thing here. Like, <laughs> how do you, how do you build up back up to that point? I think it's really hard. I don't think it's enough to just hire an outside investigator and no matter how famous they are and have them come in and investigate it. Like you've got to really work yeah. to regain that trust. Well, that's sort of like an absolute minimum that you can do, but yeah, it's unclear. I've definitely heard the follow-up news items have kind of a lot of people quitting at Uber just sort of out of frustration with the company. So what these things kind of add up to is even if you're really concerned about the money that you're going to be making from the high performers who need to be allowed to to misbehave, if that was your theory, ultimately, if it's going to get out, it's going to cost you a lot more in mm -hmm. goodwill and people deleting their Uber accounts and the good employees not wanting to work for you and the fact that you've lost you know, a whole category of good employees inside the company that you know, even if they didn't report anything or even if the news didn't get out, if they just quit, you've lost all of their contributions too. I think the employee cost is huge. I'm not, I don't know, I'm kind of skeptical or, or cynical that this will really hurt Uber's bottom line, unfortunately. But yeah, what percentage of Uber customers do you think are even going to know about this? Yeah, the number of percentage of Uber users who care enough to go delete the app, I think it's it's like when people call for boycotts, it's, I don't know, it just doesn't go anywhere. But the employee cost, I think, is big. And the visible and invisible. There may be people who resign, yeah. but just the invisible cost of people who will just never apply, right? Because they just don't want to work there. That is, that's significant. Right, right. This is certainly in the communities, the places like San Francisco, where Uber does a lot of hiring of tech people, that audience definitely knows about this. Yeah, they certainly will know about it. And if you get a reputation as like, you know, a sketchy place to work, people are going to avoid it. And especially when the competition for people, for talent is so hot, you know, the people you really want to hire have their choice of where to go and they're not going to choose you. Yeah. <sighs> Poor, now I feel no, sorry they screwed the. They screwed themselves don't over. Don't feel sorry for them. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. do not feel sorry for them. <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry. You reap what you sow. You reap what you exactly. Sow. Those poor women. Those poor, poor women. Yeah. I can't even imagine. I am so thankful to work in a place that I do, where I do have trust to tell someone yeah. if something like this happened. I cannot imagine what those women had to go through to risk their careers to yeah. be able to go and do what they love to do and try to solve problems. Like, well, I, I mean, the only silver lining is the good news is there are a bunch of other jobs in San Francisco. So it's not sort of like there were definitely times where, you know, if, if you've got kind of that great job and there's no other options and you're not in high demand, then the option of quitting might not yeah. have even been an option. But this is the drag on the tech industry as a whole too, right? You know, you want more women in tech. The number of people who start in tech and love right. it and are having a great time and then something horrible happens and then they're just like, they don't always go and look for another job in tech. They're just like, you know what? This is what tech is like. Um, this industry is terrible. Industry I'm going to go do terrible. something else. And then... What I've learned from this actually is just how much variation there is between tech. Like you can blame sure. tech, but there's a lot of companies where I don't want to say this doesn't happen, but the companies that just have a much better attitude towards how they treat their people, and there are companies that have a terrible yes. attitude as to how they treat their people. And the variation there is more than you think. These are not all just sort of generic tech companies. They're definitely not all the same. I'm wondering what's going to happen when this happens, like with a company that everybody loves. Mm -hmm. I mean, women have been saying this, talking about this kind of stuff forever, and 
it's really come to a head with Uber because, like you were saying, everybody already hated Uber. What happened if somebody quits well, a company that everybody GitHub. really loves? Like somebody quits GitHub. Yeah, there wasn't that blowback. When it was GitHub, everyone wanted to defend GitHub. Yeah, it's so hard. Like, luckily, this will hopefully wake people up. And if recruiters are smart, they should look at every woman on Uber's roster and be like calling them and letting them know that their company <laughs> does not do this and that they would love to pay them what they are worth and not treat them like shit. Yeah. Sorry. I've been very upset about this for the past week. <laughs> okay. Well, in New York, we have Juno. They give stock options to their drivers for their ethical equivalent of Uber. And I took Juno on. When did I take Juno? Save that should be my one minute tech review, Juno. They only operate in New York. But they had cars just as thick and, you know, like the availability was just as high as Uber or Lyft. Like it was easy to get a car. It wasn't like, you know, there's only two cars for all of Manhattan. Yeah. Well, the funny thing about these, do they still call them ride sharing? Because that's not what they are at all. But anyway, the funny thing about these ride sharing apps is yeah. they have so little lock-in in the sense of yeah. like, you see it every time you get into one of these cars, they've got all the apps yeah. running. They're just like, they'll take a... Right. The drivers have four apps right, running. They'll take a call from Uber and then they'll do a pickup from Lyft and like, doesn't cost them nothing to run all 14 yep. apps. So Right. And I got like six apps on my phone. I was literally thinking of if I just need to make a yeah. ride sharing I feel folder like, on like my phone because there's so many. Maybe as if consumers realize that they're literally getting the exact same cars and drivers. It's just like, which app interface do you want to use yep. to get to them? <laughs> Is Juno just on the island or are they in Brooklyn also? They're in Brooklyn, but they're just New York. So mm -hmm. not really an option for people outside of New York, but there's Lyft in a lot of cities. And when you start to travel a lot, you realize that different cities have different ones dominating sort of. So like in Israel, it's all get taxi yeah. and in Europe, depending on where you are, it may be different. So like Halo in London and there's just a lot of these either ride sharing or worst case scenario, sort of like something that will find you a taxi. Oh, um, a taxi. The not, worst, not the worst possible case scenario. But it's better than nothing. All right. Well, we've covered that one now. Another story? Glad we solved that problem. <laughs> I'm glad we figured Could coding be the next blue-collar job? Journalist Clive Thompson recently argued in Wired that programming could become the new pillar of civil middle-class society by replacing old manufacturing and mining <laughs> jobs. He writes mining? that the national average salary for IT jobs is roughly $81,000, more than double the national average for all jobs. The IT field is also expanding and is expected to grow by 12% between 2014 to 2024, a rate faster than most occupations. Finally, Thompson suggests that like many other blue-collar jobs, many programming positions don't require a college degree and the necessary training can be acquired through boot camps or vocational schools. Still doesn't sound like a blue-collar job exactly. Like I think blue-collar is a little bit more. Blue-collar is more like just right below the average income, not double the average income? Well, you know, blue collar or just, he means, you know, maybe this just becomes the staple of the economy and with a huge percent of people doing this. Is this like the people that used to buy Buicks, teachers, accountants, lawyers? Yeah, kind of the middle class, middle of the middle class. The slightly upper middle class, yeah. My fear is that software scales too well, right? This is good from an economic point of view, I guess, in terms of economic efficiency, but in terms of providing people jobs, it's like the stats on how many people like Google or Apple employ compared to their market cap versus other huge companies like car companies. It's just, they make so much money and employ so few people, right? It just concentrates the wealth versus spreading it around. And that seems to be just true of tech in general. Amazon's maybe the exception there because they actually employ a lot of people, warehouses and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. I don't even know. Yeah, we're all what, do all, what do they all do? I just found, I was on Amazon <laughs> the other day and I went to cancel an order 
because there was a $2 coupon and yeah. I'd ordered it without the coupon. So then I canceled it and then applied the coupon to get the $2. But anyway, the point of the story is the cancel order page <laughs> yeah. was you click cancel order and you travel back yeah. in time 10 years. It's amazing. Exotic. It's like, it's a forgotten oh, page on the like site. Nobody's rewritten and it's that like, page. you get the old yellow Amazon buttons with like the gradients and like all the fonts change. And it was like, whoa. David, that's just the user interface. Think about how much code there is like behind the I'm scenes. I'm just saying there's like 20 million people working at Amazon. It. I don't know if that's the exact number. Surely, Surely yeah. somebody could go update the yeah, CSS. Yeah, but, like but that's a problem of we them. have, you know, with like eight designers. It's like, ah, nobody yeah. has time to go update the old pages. Like Amazon should have. Do you we know. still have moderator pages that actually have no Chrome on them whatsoever? Yes, it's there just are. Like there are some of those. Yeah. And you just get like yeah, yeah, text plain text dumped to your, dumped your browser. Yeah. Yeah, those yeah. still exist. But that's, you know, we're 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 dumb and small. Amazon is massive. My point is we're okay, not but anyway, Amazon. back Amazon to the question. Be able to fix that. My worry is it doesn't become the thing that employs all of America in the next generation just because it actually scales too well, right? And like manufacturing or like right. mining. The software can be used. There's a clear people. like, yeah, you add one more person and they can mine a little bit more coal. And so you need, you know, if you want to mine a whole mountain, you need thousands of miners. And the problem with software is it doesn't quite work that way. You don't need to add a thousand. Well, I don't know. I guess some of these tech companies are running with thousands of programmers and I don't know what they all do, but it scales <laughs> a little too well because one person can write the software that millions of people use. And you know, yeah. you only need so many people to write UI code on Amazon.com. Well, we do have 12 different apps that dispatch That's cars true. to your current location, at least. There's probably 37 people have written that code. Well, There's some that there, marketplace is so cutthroat with so much money on the line. That's why Uber is kind of evil. But like, I worry about like, <laughs> yep. we've been lucky to not have a ton of competition for Stack Overflow. Like how much more evil would we yeah. get if we really were like existentially threatened every day? It's like either we would become well, we evil or we evil would die. That's <laughs> my, it's my fear. Uh, <clears throat> but no, we're supposed to believe you can stay good and, and still win in the marketplace. Wow. On that note, <laughs> on that optimistic note, you have gone... <laughs> <laughs> and wasted another, this podcast is probably going to be pretty short, right? You've gone and wasted another 35 minutes of your life listening to Stack Overflow Podcast 102, recorded Thursday, February 23rd, 2017 at Stack Overflow headquarters. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend, spread the word, we need more subscribers. This podcast has been brought to you by Sha One, a cryptographer's Swiss army knife. Sha One only has one <laughs> known fatal flaw, which makes it completely unsuitable for any use whatsoever. Our audio engineers, Carlos Hernandez, audio editor, David Greenlee, technology concierge, Michael Rosa, producer is Jess Perdue, executive producer is Caitlin Pike. For Erica Brescia, David Fullerton, Darren Tunder, and Ilani Itzhaki, I'm Joel Spolsky. Goodbye. Bye. See you later. Printer Jam. it in again this is gonna be like a 12 minute podcast i can tell we got yeah, it's gonna be like yeah, i got a good 12 minutes of actual content here we've thrown out entire podcasts before that's true can i tell you a story about the first podcast we threw out for some reason jeff atwood invited the creators of woot remember that website woot they were not mm. programmers they did not know about stack overflow he was like woot it's this awesome website that has a joke every week and that was kind of all they had to say. They're like, yeah, we have a website. It has a joke every week or every day. I think there was a thing you could buy with a joke. That was kind of all there was to it. Yeah. And I was like texting Jeff furiously saying, this is awful. This is the worst.
podcast we've ever produced, make them stop. Just say, okay, thanks, you guys, for coming on, and let's get on with a regular show. And Jeff just kept saying, yeah. And remember the time you guys were telling? It was, like, it was like absolutely terrible. So, like, I literally, like, I could not take it anymore. I left my office. I just, like, disconnected from my headset and wandered off and went and talked to some other people at Fog Creek about some things that I had to talk about. And I came back. They were still talking. I was like, they had not noticed that I disappeared. It's like, Jeff, this entire podcast is getting deleted. There's a lot of a lot of vampire people in this in this podcast. So many vampire audio. Vampire audio is a really good name for a band. How about if they were only like a band on weekends? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, free haircuts in Seville too. Sorry, nobody got my joke.